Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Terry Rich about creating an environment to promote creativity and innovation within organizations and the importance of being an ethical leader that demonstrates integrity in all things. Terry Rich, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I think this is always fun to uh, learn and to talk about uh, great leadership ideas. Awesome. I'm so excited to have the chance to talk with you, someone uh, of your experience, uh, 25 years plus of, uh, of doing some really great stuff with organizations. In just a moment, I'll, I'll read uh, your bio for the listeners so they can get to know you a little bit. Um, and then I'll give you a chance to to uh, share a little bit more about yourself if there's anything else you'd like to add. But, but I wanna just preview for the listeners, um, today we're really gonna be talking about creating innovative organizations. How do we create an environment that will, will uh, support and encourage innovation? And also what are some of the ethical considerations around how we lead and interact with our people uh, and other key stakeholders uh, that are impacted by what, the decisions that we make within organizations. And I know you have lots of experience uh, in, in all of those areas. Um, so I really, really am looking forward to our discussion today. Hey, it's been a fun life. Let's get started. Yeah. Uh, Terry Rich is a successful CEO and president of 25 years who loves to engage and entertain audiences across the globe. During his appointment by three governors, his leadership increased lottery sales and profits by 50%. He also led the Blank Park Zoo to profitability from a $600,000 deficit while positioning it as the second largest attended attraction in the state. Uh, his national insight on business, banking, gaming, TV production, marketing, PR have all led him to success in his professional career and to his passion for public speaking. Uh, Recently, Terry headed the team that cracked the largest lottery fraud in the U.S. history and has given away over a billion dollars to lottery winners. During the investigation, Terry oversaw the day-to-day -day operations while considering long-term consequences, adapting quickly to change and delivering on promises. Before that, he started four successful entrepreneurial businesses and has numerous national media, uh, media appearances, including ABC, NBC, HBO, CBS, 2020, CNN, CNNBC, uh, USA Today, The New York Times, etc. Uh, really, I, and I could go on and on and on. Um, I really like how you frame uh, your experience around disruptive innovation and being a disruptive innovator and entrepreneur who, who thrives and drives for uh, integrity and honesty in your workplaces. Um, so again, welcome. Uh, Thank you, but hold on. You forgot yeah. the biggest part. Uh, I have a Bachelor of Science in Speech 
which means I have a BS in speech. So this should be a funny, fun discussion when we get all set. I, I love that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you're willing to own your BS in speech. I was from uh, Iowa State University, which is science and technologies. And at the time, <laughs> uh, speech was under the uh, science and technologies uh, deals. That's how I got a BS in speech. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. Um, before we jump into the discussion, anything that you would like to add about your background? Um, Anything you'd like the listeners to know? Sometimes, sometimes you're lucky. You know, I, I sit in a, in a smaller state, state of Iowa, where all these crazy presidential caucuses begin. And uh, it's an interesting state, but I, I tell almost anyone who asks me when they're asking me about how do I get a job or how can, how can I be successful in life, that you can do it from anywhere, especially in today's technological uh, uh, society. So a uh, little bit is hard work. Uh, I... I started, uh, and I think I got that lesson from being a farm kid because my dad, uh, when something would come up, would always say, uh, "Hey, do this, you know, try it, try something new," and and he always encouraged me to do do new things. So any time in any job I've ever been, someone said, "Hey, you want to clean out the hog barn?" I was the first one to raise my hand, and I I think that really helped, and that that came from my parents. I, I came from seeing hard work out on the farm, and. I had two really fun breaks that we'll talk about through this, talking about innovation and how do you come up with new ideas and how you take those chances. Uh, the first was uh, getting to appear on Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, which uh, at 29, uh, as I talked to different comedians, thought it was pretty cool, the panel, be able to sit right on the couch next to Johnny Carson. And then the second one you mentioned was the, was the break, which was completely different and gave me an appreciation for accountants and people who are never recognized in organizations, especially from the CEO. And that was cracking the largest lottery fraud case in U.S. history, where an internal person uh, created the fraud. So it's been a fun life, and uh, I, I've enjoyed it to the hilt, and I've still got a, hopefully a few more tricks up my sleeve and another million-dollar idea, because everybody has a, a million-dollar idea. We just got to figure out how to get it out and how to act upon it. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, as and as a serial entrepreneur, um, you know, I, I really do hope that you bring those sorts of ideas and insights into our discussion today. And it's, it's not just about having that million dollar idea and how to get it out there, but it's how to do it with integrity, um, ethically, and understanding the broader social impacts that are connected to, you know, the decisions that we make and how, how we go about running our businesses. And, and, you know, we have egregious cases like these huge like pyramid schemes or big fraud cases, um, some of these super high profile things that occur that get, you know, media attention and, and, and we talk about, but white collar crime happens all the time and, and not even things that escalate to the level of white collar crime, but aren't particularly ethical, um, certainly don't, don't uh, exhibit, you know, integrity. Those types of things happen constantly within organizations and and they're detrimental of course to the health of any organization uh in being able to be innovative attracting retaining good people um you know and, and really generating a loyal um, customer base right well we talk risk and reward if you're in business and if you're not taking a risk, if you're not pushing the envelope, I was asked that when I joined the zoo, why are you, what are you doing? Why do you want to be the zoo director? Try to turn this thing around. Let's lose $600,000 a year. And I thought, well, I grew up on a farm. I'll, I'll, I'd love to try this as some, something new and unique. But when you take a risk, it often can, can 
back and bite you in the butt. Let, look at the politicians who 40 years ago did something, said something, uh, some kind of act we all did crazy in college or in high school. Uh, and then uh, finally down the road, it comes back, back to bite you. So prioritizing when you look at different risks that you have uh, is important and understanding to take, take the right risk as you create all these ideas together. What is the, the risk and the reward? And, and often uh, if people get in trouble uh, and, and the three basic premises from an ethics are uh, rationalization. Uh, at some point you rationalize, I, I need to do this because I'm behind, my credit cards are down, my kids are in college, whatever. Um, the other is opportunity, the checks and balances. How important when you are in leadership to do checks and balances. I mean, you send in a travel request and you have to fill out all this paperwork. Why is that? Well, we're trying to protect you as an employee because if, if you're tempted uh, and you have the opportunity to do it, if you don't, you know, the person, I, I talk about schools and, and counties where the person who writes the checks also writes the POs, you're fraud for fraud. So, you know, all of those kinds of things, and of course, financial, need at some point is, is the final piece of those three that gets you in trouble from an ethics standpoint. So when you're trying to create an innovative environment, you want to reward risk, but you also want to uh, understand the um, things that can happen if you go way off the chart and do something illegal or unethical. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I love that you, you uh, described the three legs of that stool um, for, for when uh, unethical behavior happens within organizations. In a previous life, uh, uh, I, I taught criminology uh, for several years. Uh, I'm, I, I'm a scholar practitioner. I'm a professor in teaching organizational leadership, and I also do consulting, and I do this podcast. Um, but while I was going through my PhD program, you know, sometimes they assign you to teach whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for three years, I was assigned to teach criminology. And uh, which was super interesting. And so one of the things we, we uh, focused on a lot was white collar crime and the prevalence of it, uh, people would be shocked. Uh, you, again, you have these, these high profile cases, but the, the vast majority of cases is just an average Joe uh, worker at some lower level of the organization who you would never suspect. And, and, and oftentimes they haven't ever done anything like it before. But like you, like you said, they had a need, they, they were going to miss their mortgage payment. Um, you know, they, 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 they rationalize and they think, I just need, you know, I, I, I'll, just, I'll just take it this once just so I can get back on track and I'll pay it right back and no one will know the difference. Um, you know what also surprised me is I, we, I started into this, you know, as a CEO, each year you get the audit. And when I worked for the state and the state lottery, uh, I would have a state auditor's office come in. And I thought, hey, I'm clean, everything's good, nothing's happening in my organization. And what I didn't realize that the American fraud examiners will, will tell you is that the majority of fraud in an organization is not caught by the external auditor. In fact, the, the, the external auditor is one of the last ones, down at about four or 5% of all fraud is caught by that external auditor. Fraud is caught by employees, vendors, and anonymous tips. So you wanna make sure that you have a, uh, a hotline or somewhere that people can can at least say, hey, this doesn't feel right, you should check this out, uh, or employees that, that'll be able to do it. Then of course, management oversight, internal audit, but the actual external auditor is, is down the list quite a ways on how to catch fraud within an organization. And that, that surprised me because I, I figured as a CEO, heck, you have the big state auditor come in, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, excellent.
You know what else? You said something just a few minutes ago when you were talking about doing the additional class for three years. It goes back to the innovation we started with, and that is you raised your hand. You did something that you hadn't done before, might have felt uncomfortable, yet you learned something new and you had a lot of fun in, in, in doing that. You learned a whole new trait or technique. And many people are afraid to go outside that. I, I heard uh, uh, in my, in, uh, just a few years ago, you learn different things, but as a few years ago as a CEO, I, I heard another CEO, a couple of millennials that talked, the, the Good Life is the name of their company. Now, a couple of guys started, it went great, and they had all these millennials working for them. It was creative, it was entrepreneurial, it was fun. And they noticed that everybody's coming to a meeting and say, oh gosh, I have to come to this meeting, or I have to do this, or I have to do that. And they called everybody in and said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We're gonna eliminate the word have, and we're gonna use the word get. I get to come to the meeting, or I get to go to a meeting that's cantankerous because I was chosen, I have the ability, I have the expertise, I have the desire, and the drive to learn. And all of a sudden, the entire organization became positive from negative. And I, I pass that along a lot. And I give those guys credit because that was something that, to me, you know, I, I get to do this interview. I get to talk to you. You got to, to do this new course that expanded your horizon. And that, that probably is, is so much more fun because you have accomplished something you didn't really realize happened. And that happened a lot to me in my life. Well, yeah, and actually that's a good segue, I think, into having more of a discussion around creating an innovative environment within organizations to drive success. I, I think, I, I wanna hear your thoughts on, you know, how, how you, the nuts and bolts of how you really go about doing that. But I think one of the main things is you just have to create a learning organization where people are rewarded for appropriate levels of risk taking uh, and for trying new things. Uh, and where there's lots of opportunity for cross-pollinization. So I'm a big believer in interdisciplinary dialogue and research and, you know, most of the world's most perplexing problems, most of organizations' most complex problems are not going to be solved ever by a one-prong approach. You know, we always have to tackle them through multiple areas, and we can only do that as we develop systems, thinking mindset, growth mindset, uh, a constant learning mindset, and then put ourselves in situations where we can, you know, sometimes even force the cross-pollinization of ideas so people have those kind of dialogues on a regular basis. Because people tend to get siloed. You know, they have their area of expertise and they're going to focus on this thing and that's what they're good at and that's what they're happy doing. And then you have other people over here doing this and, and then lo and behold, you have dysfunction in organizations and you don't have anything. It becomes top down. It becomes really bureaucratic and you yep. just don't have a lot of innovation. So. You, you should be, uh, you should have been my promoter for the book, the book, dare to dream, <laughs> dare to act. Kind of, I learned over the years, a couple of things. And one is if you say, Oh, you know, you come in with a boss, you go into a meeting. Uh, I need 10, I need some ideas. We're 10% down. Uh, what do you think? What do you think? Everybody looks around. Well, that my is a two-step approach. The first stop is dare to dream. What you're trying to do. And I, when I went to a Napa Valley, you go out there and I thought that, that a winery had uh, some vines, you know, some grapes out behind the, the place and they use those grapes every year and that's how they got the best wine. But no, no. They go out and they take different grapes from all the different vineyards and try to figure out what the best one is for the mix they're trying to create. 
And that's the idea when you're trying to brainstorm. Everybody brainstorms. You take that bushel basket, you get at least 100 ideas in any given meeting. But the big thing is, is to be able to get rid of the no man's in a meeting in that first meeting. So you don't want to judge at all. No judgment is so important. So if somebody says something, you don't want people going, no, you know, oh, that's the dumbest idea ever. You're trying to get rid of the no man's. And the no man's, it's the lady on the end that's saying, no man, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. We've tried that before. And what you find in that first step, if you can just set the rules of let's get as many ideas, let's get 100 ideas, and then we're just going to walk away from it. We're going to write all those ideas down is that now you've got a basis to work around and everybody feels free to say whatever because I'll guarantee you the receptionist who may be in that meeting or the accountant or the lawyer, they're the first ones to say no on everything. They come in with judgment. If you can say there is no judgment here, we want every idea, we're going to put them together. That's step one, daring to dream. Step two is daring to act. And so you bring all of those ideas back and that's the point that will keep you ethical because you know the lawyer's gonna say, hey, we can get sued on here, here's our deal, uh, here's, here's the reason why, or the accountant say, we don't have the money to do this, but you get the entire group to buy in together on all those ideas to prioritize what the best one is. And that doesn't mean that number 99 is bad, it's just for today, uh, the group thinks that if we're gonna get that 10%, here are the three ideas that we should try, and then acting on it. As a CEO, and I, I we all know many CEOs. I'll guarantee you there isn't a single one that doesn't get out of their car in a day, no matter how many millions their company's worth or how much it makes each year or billions, that doesn't look up and think, oh my God, I'm in charge today. And has a little bit of apprehension of whether they can really pull this thing off. But yet when they walk into the door, they have confidence and they make a decision. So once you get all the ideas and you prioritize, you get the group together, if the boss says, hey, let's do it. It empowers everyone to get together and do it. So that's a good way on the brainstorming idea, but, but here's my little secret. My secret to success that I found down the road is something called COT, C-O-T. You know how uh, we, we all get together and individually, maybe you take a sh in the shower or you dream at night, you should have a piece of paper and you write, every, write things down as you think about it. Otherwise, otherwise you forget it. But I went into the lottery, state organization, and uh, we'd get together and I'd say, hey, have we thought about an animal on a ticket? Or, hey, could we paint the wall blue? Or could we do this? How about this? How about that? Two weeks later, the entire management staff melted down. They said, we can't do it. I'm thinking, state employees, what do you mean you can't do it? They said, this, these are too many things. I said, well, wait, wait a minute. I didn't say it to say you have to do it. I said it because I wanted to give an idea and I want you to create ideas back and forth. So we talked through the concept of just understanding because uh, I don't know if you, you know, a boss or a king says, oh, poop, everybody runs to the bathroom because employees like to please their bosses. And so we talked through how could we identify when I'm giving ideas that, uh, that you'll know what my meaning is, is giving that. So we came up with a real simple concept. One is when I send you an email or if I'm talking to you and I say action required, I put that in the subject line. That means you better do it. The boss says, yeah, that's, it's job changing if you don't. Second one we use a lot, FYI, for your information, for your information. Well, we use that a lot and that kind of means, well, yeah, read it when you can. We may discuss this, but here's some information that might be useful down the road. But the final one, I, I do about half a percent I figured out on action required because you want to talk, you want to discuss. FYI, I use what, 30, 40%, but about 50% of what I was started sending out was COT, and it stands for Consider 
or throwaway. And what that does for you, and what that did for the, for the managers and, and employees when I'd send that out, we had rules that if you get one of these emails, you can simply forget about it. You don't have to read it. You can, in fact, delete it completely. Uh, it took all the pressure off. All I'm trying to do is just get this idea off my chest. And the final rule of it is, I want your ideas back the same way. Now, why this seemed to work so well is they went back then and had their employees do the same thing. And all of a sudden, the receptionist who knew that that, that chair in the front was soiled, maybe broken, somebody could get hurt, but was afraid to say because they didn't know if it cost too much or who, who's in charge of that chair. All of a sudden, you know, if they did it in the old days, they'd write something down and put it in the suggestion box. And what happened? About uh, two weeks later, they didn't hear anything because that suggestion maybe got pulled out a week later. We'd give, you give them to this person, that person, somebody check. Nobody wants to tell the reception it's a bad idea because it probably might be a good idea, but uh, we're, we got to get back to them and have everybody talk about it. And then that receptionist was downstairs saying, I gave an idea, management never listens to you. Well, now she had a tool. All she or he could write COT in the subject line and they knew I would not respond or the senior VP or whoever in charge would respond. It meant I just needed to tell you and I was afraid before, but here you go. Now we read them all, but they didn't expect a response. We didn't care, there was no judgment there. They, they had the opportunity to give the idea. Now, all of these ideas started flowing back and forth and it became a much more creative environment. So try that with the use of COT, COT, in an organization, but be sure to tell the rules if they get it, or if you're talking to someone, you don't want them giving an opinion right away. Uh, that's really, really important because the opinion comes in the, all the ideas together to the next staff meeting, and then the accountants can pipe up, we, you know, whether we can afford it or not, the lawyers can pipe up, everybody gives their input, and then you prioritize those ideas and get it. But, we found a much more innovative, innovative idea. And I'll give you a quick example of how that worked at the zoo. So we went to the zoo losing $600,000. And as I looked at it, I realized that all kids go to the zoo. I don't care if you're two to 12, you go to the zoo. We had that audience. So we tried to figure out how can we get a different audience? And well, of course, everybody's going after millennials or the younger generation, the 21 to, 21 to 25 year olds, 20 or 35 year olds. And uh, we started thinking, now what would they want that they could come to the zoo? Because most people go when you're a kid, go when you take your kid, go when you take your grandkid. We knew what they wanted, booze, right? So we decided to start Zoo Brew. And this came from one of the employees. They said, yeah, we, we, you know, we go like the party, but we don't go to the smoky bar. So no kids allowed those evenings. We had a band, we had all the animals out. And it was the greatest thing. In fact, last year at that zoo, uh, generate over $250,000 just in beer sales for Zoo Brew. And it's a fun outdoor event that happens every Wednesday night at the Blank Park Zoo. But that came out of that innovative feeling of not being afraid to give an idea. But again, you're trying to get the bushel basket full of ideas. You're writing them all down. And you're revisiting them all the time to see if any of those rise to the top for priorities so that your entire staff uh, are on board when you actually execute and act on an idea. I love that idea. Um, COT makes a whole lot of sense. And I sure wish, you know, just like anyone listening, you know, we get so many emails every day, right? And, and right. you just you just try to stay on top of them. And you wonder, like, how much time am I wasting on these emails? Um, and the FYI, the COT, you know, just, just uh, uh, marking emails that way is, is a brilliant idea. It's super simple. And, and I love that you're just, you're trying to create a, 
uh, a safe space for people to openly share, right? And that's the and concept, I, yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 there's it's not rocket science. There, I mean, you just described an incredibly easy method to go about doing that, and that's not the only way to do it either, right? There's other ways, but you're helping the them prioritize their workload. And if yeah. I give them all of my ideas, they will feel like I just dumped the entire weight of the world on their shoulders. And sometimes people are, you know, doing a conversion in the computer department or the accounting department trying to close out a month. If you can say, just delete it, you know, they never will. I never delete anything that I get, but it really gives us an opportunity to pass them along or at least categorize it over here on the left. So that the day I am not as busy, I can read through them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, good. I, I really love that insight. Um, we just have a few more minutes, but I know you wanted to just share briefly about, um, and you've already talked a little bit about the, the fraud scandal. Um, what can you tell us about how that went down and some of the key takeaways, lessons? Learned? Sure. Um, the, the Eddie Tipton case was an interesting guy walks into a store, buys a ticket, wins $16.5 million. Not a big deal. It happens every day. Fortunately, it was his bad day because he didn't realize he was in a state that required, uh, to disclose who won the ticket. And secondly, that in that store, out of 2,400 stores in the state, only four had video and audio being recorded. He didn't realize his audio was being recorded. He disguised all that. Well, this was an insider. This was a guy that worked for one of our vendors, the multi-state lottery, and he was the head security officer. And it took us almost three years to investigate it. But when something doesn't quite feel right, you go after it. And he was greedy. He had all the keys to the kingdom. And uh, it ultimately was just a little dinky case. The other thing I learned is associates. You can think of uh, in any industry as if one little state or one little company, uh, if one company was figured out something was happening with Coca-Cola and uh, brought something up, you know, you could ruin that whole industry. Well, this was an $80 billion gamble because across the United States, more money spent on lotteries than the uh, Major League Football, Major League Baseball, movies and music, if you combine it all, that's still less than what's spent on lottery. So uh, I had cohorts that said, just drop it, you know, pay it, don't do anything. I had people who, who said, well, it does feel kind of screwy, but you know, be careful because you're gambling with our dollars. And ultimately we figured out that, uh, that it came back to this gentleman who was an insider, who was the person who was programming the computer to draw the numbers for that particular game. And when we found that, we dove uh, deeper, got the uh, Department of Criminal Investigation and the Attorney General's office in. And I hope you never get asked this question, but they were asking his uh, friends, do you want to be the witness or do you want to be the defendant? And almost everybody said, I'll be the witness. Ultimately, we figured it out and we got full confessions out of all three, which was a real tribute to our investigators and the state uh, investigators and prosecutors to get full convictions confessions and sentencing for the largest lottery fraud in US history. And the best part of it is it is never just one person that did it, it was a team. And I, I say that because one person uh, figured out when it was all said and done, Eddie bought two hot dogs when he, uh, Eddie Tipton, who was a culprit, when he went in to buy this ticket, if he hadn't bought those two hot dogs during the trial, he asked his brother to come in to be a character witness. And he said, that don't look like, uh, that, that can't be my brother because my brother don't eat hot dogs. And you look over and a 400 pound guy doesn't eat hot dogs. The Associated Press picked up that story and put it on the national wires and went back to his brother who was trying to give the character witness hometown 
And an FBI agent said, wait a minute, I investigated that brother for money fraud 10 years ago. Gave us that by the time it was all done, uh, we got the connection. And that same brother was a Bigfoot hunter. If he hadn't been a Bigfoot hunter, it wouldn't ultimately done the, because he did that through a, big, a Bigfoot hunter friend. Uh, and that's how we, how we got the whole, whole uh, association with that. So we say Bigfoot, two hot dogs, and a lottery ticket helped solve the largest lottery fraud in U.S. history. It was not fun. I'm telling you what, it's a lot easier when you're in charge of an organization not to go after fraud because you have to worry about the press. You have to worry about everything with it. Uh, on the flip side, it's, uh, I'm, I can sleep at night. If I, if I had let this go, it'd still be happening today, no doubt in my mind. And uh, on a nationwide basis, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty scary. So a lot of good, good causes get a lot of money through the lotteries. And uh, it was not something that, was it worth a gamble? Yeah, I guess so. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it has really been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, I wish we had more time and perhaps we can do this again sometime soon. Uh, can I give discuss- you my last million dollar idea? Uh, please. Million dollar idea. And then I want, also want um, you to, to uh, share with the listeners how they can get in touch with you. Oh, sure. Million dollar idea. When we, when Mega Millions uh, and Powerball decided to be in all states, they were asking me for marketing ideas. I was in charge of marketing for Powerball at the time. Here's the idea. I looked up one night and there was the moon and it was dark and maybe just a little sliver. I thought, holy smokes, that'd be a great billboard. If we could get a laser or a, or a spotlight of some sort and put the jackpot up there, everybody in the world would see it. So I did a lot of research and couldn't quite figure out technically how to do it. But if you and I could figure out how to do that, think about we could own the moon. There's my million dollar idea. Uh, for contact information to, to help you out there and wrapping it up, uh, Contact information is pretty easy. Terry, terryspeaks.com. Terryspeaks.com. Uh, it has how to contact me. It has how to get me. You can get a hold of both of the books, uh, the $80 billion gamble and the dare to dare to dream, dare to act are both there and uh, a lot of fun. But more importantly, this was a pleasure. Good to meet you via Zoom and uh, to have some fun, to tell some fun stories about a fun life. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure talking with you. I encourage my listeners to to reach out um, to you and and to to look more into to what you can do for them and to help them in their organizations. Uh, I hope uh, all of my listeners uh, and my guests have a great uh, rest of their week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.